When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Commander Chakotay informs me there's a new hollow novel. Must become quite popular among the crew. It's been accessed 47 times by 33 different crew members. I don't suppose anyone here is familiar with what we're talking about. Um, actually, uh, Captain, I'm the one who found it on the auxiliary database. I've been running it, too. Anybody else? Okay, Marvel fans, we're here to talk about Thor Ragnarok here on Positively Marvel. I'm Bruce Gibson, and with me, as he always is, is Dan Gunther. Dan, how are you today? Uh, I'm good. Uh, did I cross into a different quantum reality again? I hate when that happens. Is I, this... I don't think so. Well, I mean, Thor Ragnarok kind of, yeah, there's multiverses in Marvel. So, right, yeah. right. Right. Are are okay, are we still Star Trek fans? What's going on here? I'm I'm confused. Hold oh yeah, on. Star Trek. Did I oh, did I grab a grab the wrong infinity stone again? Dang it. Oh, I don't know. I mean I I've seen Star Trek. It's pretty good, yeah. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh Star Trek is Marvel because Star Trek has been in Marvel Comics before. That's true. That's I you know I think I see what's happened here, Bruce. This week, we were supposed to discuss the Star Trek Voyager novel Ragnarok by Nathan Archer. Did you watch Thor Ragnarok instead? Uh, yeah, and I read the comic and then I read the novelization for the oh. podcast. Oh, well, this is this is awkward. Well, well, why would there be Star Trek Voyager Ragnarok? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to name a Voyager novel after a Marvel movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You make a really good point that I can't argue against at all. <laughs> Wait, and the Voyager novel came out long before the movie, so that doesn't make sense. Weird. You know, it's funny, actually, uh, going through Star Trek novels, just as a little tangent here, there's a Star Trek Voyager novel called Ragnarok, which we're going to talk about. There's a Deep Space Nine Revenant, which makes me think of the Leo DiCaprio movie from a few years ago. There's an original Star Trek novel called Inception. So like <laughs> just all these different movies and some of them from before the movie came out and some of them after. So, uh, yeah, there I don't know if some of them are just coincidence or trying to bank on a big name or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I came up with the idea of this novel because I wanted to read a Voyager novel because it's been a while since we've had anything Voyager. I mean, really, the last Voyager novel that was new came out a couple of years ago from Kirsten Beyer, and we're not getting new Voyager novels coming in the horizon. So I want to go to like a real old one. 
And this is the third one that was released. And the first one is the pilot episode. So it's a novelization of that, which I did buy at the time and read when Voyager premiered. And then the second one, I can't remember the name off the top of my head right now, but we did review it once before. I can't remember if it was here or Literary Treks, but we did review that one. Yeah, that one was The Escape by Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush, I believe. That is so good. You're right. That is correct. That sounds very correct to me. Yes, The Escape. I knew it began with an E. I was sitting here trying to think, what is it? What is it? But yeah, that's it. So then I thought, okay, Ragnarok. And then I thought, oh, that's interesting. That is like that name of that movie with Thor. (laughs) Because I'm not that familiar with Ragnarok. I didn't even look to to see why it was called Ragnarok for the Thor movie. Because I'm just not into mythology like that. So I'm, I'm assuming, Dan, you know what Ragnarok is. Yeah. So yeah, Ragnarok basically, and it gets outlined by Tuvok even in the novel here. Ragnarok is kind of the, the Norse mythology version of, of Armageddon. Basically it's the end of the world. It's the epic final battle between the Norse gods and the frost giants that, yeah. So it's, it's their big end of the universe party, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It started to sound like game of Thrones there for a moment. (laughs) Well, I guess that foreshadows what we're going to get in this novel. It's the end of the universe by the time we get to the end. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, because this is early Voyager. You couldn't end the series right then and there in that first season. So this novel actually came out in 1995 by Nathan Archer. No relation to Jonathan Archer, just so you know. That we know of. He could be a distant ancestor. That would be cool, too. Yeah. If Jonathan Archer was actually related to a Star Trek author. Yep, there you go. That's in my <laughs> headcanon now. <laughs> okay, good. Well, we're not going to like hit spoilers right away, but Dan, would you like to read the description of this novel? Hope flares for Captain Catherine Janeway and the crew of the USS Voyager when their sensors detect a signal that could lead them to a way home. But as the starship Voyager races to the source of the signal, the crew find themselves in the middle of a raging battle between two warring races, a battle that has lasted for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Now, to find a way home, Captain Janeway and her crew must make their way through the most violent spaceborne conflict ever known, with both sides determined to destroy them. Oh, Ragnarok! Yeah! So... <laughs> The end of the universe. Dan, this novel has been out for over 25 years now. Have you ever read it? It's funny. Before today. Uh, be- before, yeah, before this this last week, I have not read this novel, and it has sat on my shelf for probably most of those 25 years. I remember early when, when Voyager was premiering, I was very excited, right? You know, a new Star Trek series, uh, and, and I... I was around for the beginning of Deep Space Nine, but for some reason Voyager was coming and it was like a big event. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to collect all of the pocketbooks Voyager novels as they come out. That that will be the one complete set of novels that I have. So I started collecting them very early on and and reading a bunch of them, you know, here and there, but mostly not finding time to read all of them and just kind of assembling them on my shelf. So yeah, this one's been on my shelf for quite a long time. I probably brought, bought it new 
maybe, maybe not. It might've been after the fact that he used bookstore. I'm not sure, but most of those early ones I bought new and, uh, yeah, I had never gotten around to reading this one before. Wow. I haven't read it either. I'd never bought it when it came out. I do remember, like I mentioned, buying the first Voyager novel and I don't know when the next one I bought was. I'd have to look at my shelf. It was some, I mean, it was one of the numbered books, but I know I didn't buy at least the first few. And I, I don't know why I didn't because I was reading Star Trek novels at the time, but I think I don't, I think I didn't buy them because I knew that it was early in the series and they probably wouldn't be that good because they wouldn't know so much about Voyager. I feel so different about that now when it comes to Discovery and Picard because I think they're smarter with those books and not just have them take place within the first season and try to be like another episode, which is hard to do when it's serialized anyway. Because, like, for example, we, you know, we got a Rios book and it's about Rios in the past. And you've got somebody like Kirsten Beyer, who's part of the show that works with the authors and, you know, which back then they brought in authors. And it's like, oh, here are some of the scripts. It hasn't even premiered on TV yet. Read the scripts and write a novel. And that's pretty hard to do. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring that up because I even had that thought while reading this novel. And of course, this first part of the episode is we're not going to get into spoilers yet. But one thing I will say is it occurred to me reading this that like it's kind of tough even to put a novel in early Voyager history because we've got this area of space where this big thing is happening that that we'll talk about. And in my mind, all I'm thinking is, okay, so the Voyager's encountering the Kazon and stuff. And then there's this big, huge area of space where all this stuff is happening. And then they're going on through it and finding the same Kazon on the other side of it and stuff. And like this, ugh. and it, it's almost the same issue I had with Voyager while I was watching it, which is like, you know, this doesn't make sense. This should be way past that by now. What's going on? Why do we keep running into these same people? Seska again? What's going on? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that used to bother me when I watched it as it came out because it would be like the second season and we're still running to the Kazon and stuff. I'm like, my gosh, if they've been traveling for almost two years, like they keep running into the same races and the same people and all this stuff. Mm. I was just like, this doesn't make, and I kept wondering also about Neelix. It's like, oh, Neelix is there to help guide them. And he would be like, oh yes, this planet, I know about that. Oh yes, this, I know about that. I'm like, how far out has Neelix gone? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, at some point he's going to go, I've never been out this far. I don't know any of this stuff going on, which eventually does happen. Yeah. I always actually really liked that Voyager like dedicated an episode to that, to Neelix freaking out. Cause like, this is the farthest he's been. I need to find a map. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, I got some sense of that in this novel too. But like you said, it starts off with, you know, them showing that Janeway wants to get her crew home. We're starting off with that mission of getting home. And there's that star cluster where Neelix is like, oh, Captain, I, I advise you not to go through this. There's these these two warring races in there that have been fighting for centuries, if not maybe a millennia. And, and, you know, no one goes in there. No one goes near them and no one even trades with them. People wanted to trade with them and they're just too violent and stuff. And this war's been going on forever. Do not go in there. And Janeway's just like, well, I don't know. We'll see. I'll consider it. Like, she's just kind of like, oh, you're our guide, but 
you know, okay, maybe we'll go around it or something. I don't know. But she seemed just kind of like, yeah, pat, pat on the head, Neelix. Did it come across like that to you? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, when we get into like the the spoiler discussion of the book, I I have some thoughts on how Neelix is portrayed in this novel. But yeah, uh, that was that was interesting. And then, of course, there's something that makes Janeway want to go into the cluster. But at first, she's kind of willing to take his advice. But yeah, like you said, kind of a little bit standoffish about it. It's almost like this book was written with just the pilot in mind. I don't know if the author saw any of the other episodes. And I'm not saying this is a badly written book at all. I mean, again, there's only so much Voyager, whether the author read just some of the scripts or saw some of the episodes, but it's really playing off of the Bible of Voyager Mm -hmm. and that first pilot episode because it's all about trying to get home. And then there's the Tetrion beam that they experience and they think, oh no, this, this could be the, the caretaker, you know, this could be the, the lost companion of the caretaker. And we need to go find this, you know, this other care possible caretaker or whatever. And it's like, wow, we, it's early on. Like, do we really expect to read this book and they find the other array and go back home that soon? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, that's not going to happen. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this, this was published in July, 1995, like you said, and that's only six months after the first episode of Voyager aired. So yeah, it, it feels like he's operating off of mainly the show Bible and, and that kind of stuff. I do notice that, they don't make the mistake of calling the doctor, Dr. Zimmerman in here, mm. like they did in the escape because yeah. that was part of the original concept for Voyager was that he was going to take that name very early on. But that of course never happened. Yeah. That's a good point. And the fact that this came out six months after the premiere of Voyager, of course this was being written before the book was published obviously Mm -hmm. probably you know several months so yeah there's no way this author saw the complete season and then wrote the book unless he did it like within a month which i doubt that's how it occurred yeah and plus the fact that it came out six months after the first title the first voyager episode aired they could probably if they had made some of the same mistakes that the previous novel had do a quick find and replace for all instances of zimmerman (laughs) Like, oops, we can we can do little polishes on it as we're working up to the release date here. Yeah. And there's one thing I would kind of criticize on this. And again, it's the product of the situation. But there's a lot of exposition throughout the book about who these characters are, what their motivation is. It's all the things we know from watching the series or even just the pilot episode. Yeah, I got that impression very early on as well, for sure, that like well, we know all this and then thinking, well, okay, it's one of the early novels, I guess, in case somebody hasn't watched Voyager yet and they just picked up a novel because it said Star Trek. Yeah, maybe the editor wanted a little bit more of a kind of establishing of, of the baseline of the show in there. But yeah, it, it was it did strike me as odd for sure that like, you know, they're like Captain Janeway commanding the ship and Neelix, who was brought on board early, he was a traitor that blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, <laughs> I think we know who Neelix is. Yeah. Maybe not everybody did when it came out. 
Yeah, an explanation of the caretaker and the Kazon that they ran into and the apocalypse, you know, all this stuff going on. Yeah, it was just, there's a lot of that throughout the book, you know. And even when it kind of settles down, they get to a Balana at some point in engineering and explain who Balana is, half human, half Klingon, and her whole situation and all these things. I mean, if, if it is something that you never watched before Voyager, then this book would catch you up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's pretty good at doing that so dan what's your initial thoughts of this book so i enjoyed it for the most part it was it was an interesting read kind of a an interesting glimpse at early voyager with some issues with some of of the characterization which is a little bit unavoidable because it's so early in the series and there's going to be some missteps here and there as far as as how the characters are portrayed and that sort of thing which you know i'm sure we'll get to there's a glaring one that we've already kind of hinted at i think uh but yeah i'm I'm glad that we read this one it's one that like i said it's been on my shelf for so long it's nice to finally kind of get to it and say oh that's what that story is about cool uh so yeah i'm initially i think before our discussion here i'm gonna give it a rough uh i'd say three out of five so worth reading not my favorite, not in the four or five star level, but I am curious to see, because this always happens, how our thoughts about the book might change as we discuss it throughout the rest of the episode. Yeah, I would give it about a three out of five, too, only because it's it's not a bad book, but it's an early Voyager book. So it comes across to me as almost like a short story. Uh, it does feel like it could be an episode. So mm-hmm. there isn't like a whole lot of meat to it, which we're used to when we're reading a lot of books today, where there's a lot of character depth and a lot of different things going on. And this one's just like kind of straightforward. There's kind of a plot A and B at one point. But no, I, I enjoyed it. And it wasn't it wasn't bad at all, but it wasn't great either. It was just, a you know, if you just want to sit down and read a quick read of a Voyager novel that feels like Voyager, the early days of it, this would be a perfect book. So, yeah, I'd say three out of five or, you know, it's book three of the series. So that's maybe another reason why we're giving it a three. Right. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's right there on the cover. Right. There's there's that's the right. three. You know what to expect. It's a three. <laughs> But let's dig deeper into it, and we'll be right back after this quick message. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters for helping us to bring you this episode of Positively Trek. We truly could not do it without your support. To join the ranks of our Patreon supporters, such as Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, Paul D. Kinnear, and John Blaber, please go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can join at any level to receive perks such as early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content. And at higher levels, there are shoutouts and associations producer credits, and much more. Thank you once again for your support of Positively Trek. And now, let's get back to the show. Then we have the two warring races that are in this cluster. And the ones that are fighting, one is called the Paneer, and they're tall with gleaming blue-black exoskeletons. They have four arms. They have no facial features. You just see, like, these eyes. And they almost look like kind of like really tall insect type creatures and they have ruses that they use in attempt to gain advantages and because of this then we have the achai who are forearmed 
stock-eyed, round little creatures, and they have become distrustful of anything and everything because of the paneer trickery. And so there's the strict code that the paneer have and they don't recognize authority and they gave up trade to focus on the war effort. So now Voyager begins exploring these planets in the cluster that are abandoned and they find these traces of metal and stuff. But anyway, it leads to them learning more about more about the Hachai than the paneer. But what'd you think about what we learned about these two races? So I really like that they're different, you know, it's, it's something you can do in novels much more easily, of course, than you can do on the show. Uh, they're, they're different looking. They're not your typical humanoid with a bumpy head. And I remember watching Voyager in the early days and thinking, oh, they're going to be on the other side of the galaxy. We're going to see so many crazy different aliens that are like nothing we've seen before. And it was more bumpy headed aliens of the week more often than not. But you know, there's a television budget. I didn't understand that as a kid, but here, yeah, we get something a little bit different. And we also something that isn't done enough at this point in Star Trek. I think we get some insight into the different psychology of the aliens as well and how they think and how they communicate a little differently than us. Not, crazily differently but just enough to cause some initial confusion and stuff so yeah i really kind of enjoyed the the imagination that went into the alien races here yeah because they're not you know humanoid like you're saying that we you know the bumpy head of the week type thing they're definitely different looking and it's almost hard for me to picture exactly what they look like because we've never really seen anything quite like them before but i got a you know pretty good idea of how I visualize them in my head. But the fact that they've been fighting for all this time, for a long period of time and never stopped, and that these planets have really been abandoned because they're just constantly fighting each other out into space. And they used up all these metals from these planets for their ships. Voyager finds an abandoned ship that was under construction and never was finished because, well, they ran out of metal. <laughs> I yeah. Mean, it's just crazy. That was chilling, like going from planet to planet and like all of the asteroids, all of the planets, there's no metals in any of them. And this one planet, there's like this fledgling civilization that's in kind of early stages of development. And they kind of realize they're not going to progress much further because they're not going to have an Iron Age or a Bronze Age or anything like that because... They just have no metals to work with, no metals upon which to build their civilization. And, you know, I'm thinking reading that, well, maybe they'll find a different way and, and that sort of thing. But like metals really are a godsend to a civilization trying to figure out how to make tools and do different things. So, yeah, that was brutal. Just the the desolation that it's left this entire star cluster in. Yeah. And they get to the star cluster and they start to realize that there's this big object in it, this one solid thing. But after some examination and closer look at it, they see movement. And they start to realize it's a cluster of ships. They're all fighting each other, but they're so close together. And they use their tactics to block one another. And so what looked like one big object was just tons and tons of these ships. And I think it was Janeway that said that they're a cluster inside a cloud of blood. Which I yeah. love that phrase. <laughs> yeah, the, this this debris field or this this haze 
that's you know all of the the microscopic wreckage of ships but also like you say the biological remnants of the crews the blood or or the icor or whatever just making up this whole oh that was another again chilling like there's a lot in this book that kind of sends a shiver down my spine a bit when i read it yeah it's like as we're talking through it i'm starting to realize like i'm getting more chills now than i was then Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know just thinking about it but yeah it's like that that haze that dust that's going on i'm just picturing all these like ships just like so close together and they're finding each other and you got to think i mean tuvok says that he estimates this has been going on for at least six to eight hundred years and it's like they just keep fighting and fighting and getting nowhere nobody's winning after hundreds of years nothing is happening they're not even on their planets i mean really their life and what they know of it is this this is what life is is just living a life of fighting and ships yeah and so what what drew Janeway and them, of course, initially was this Tetrion beam, which reminded them, like you said, of the caretaker's technology. But once they get there and see all this, they get it in their head. Well, we need to do what we can do to stop this war because all these people are dying. And that's what Starfleet does. Like we broker peace and stuff. So, you know, this battle that's going, been going on for centuries you know, maybe we'll not succeed, but we're going to do our best to come in here at the last minute and make them see reason and realize that fighting's not the answer. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> but then Tuvok points out at some point that this also could be dangerous, that any interference they have, any communication they have could tip the scales in one direction for one of these races versus the other, and therefore one would win. And they would put an end to the war, but one destroys the other. And so they have to be very careful, of course, with the prime directive, not to get too involved and have those scales tipped. So they kind of have to walk that fine line. Yeah, the the prime directive issue, it's an interesting one in here as well that like they can't really interfere, like they can't take sides, but they're they're hoping to be able to broker a piece of some kind. But yeah, like you said, that danger is there that one side or the other could get an advantage. And I was kind of worried about this as like they were hailing different ships, trying to get an answer and like the Hachai ships come out and are talking to them and warning them off and stuff. And I was like, Oh, they're being pulled away from the battle. Is that going to be enough to tip it? Like basically the right thing at the right time in the right place could be the, the flapping of the butterfly wings that, set everything in motion for one side to win or the other. So yeah, it's a good illustration of why the prime directive is an important thing. You know, you don't know what kind of influence you can have, which I guess the crew will learn by the end of the novel as well. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. And then these two warring races, it's determined that they, they have built these defenses, but not really much on their weapons. And this is kind of a weird thing to say right now, but it just came to mind. You know, I went to Penn State and uh, the football team at that time and Joe Paterno was the coach. I remember his focus was defense. You have to have a strong defense and you don't need as strong as an offense as long as you have a strong defense. And so that was always his focus. So the team was really known for their their defense. And so I, I think about these different warring races where it's like the defense is so important 
because it can prevent the offense of someone shooting at you. But then again, they're not getting anywhere because they both have their defenses up and they're just firing each other and nothing's really happening. I mean, sure, every once in a while, a ship can get destroyed or whatever, but they're just not getting anywhere. And so their weapons are weak and they're not using phasers. They're using just like really, well, they've got uh, these like energy weapons. They're not phasers, but they're really just strong on the shielding Mm -hmm. and about maneuvering and trapping the enemy to try to get to them. Yeah, the shields. And and of course, they make a, a pretty important discovery that they're very efficient shields, right? The, these shields they have, uh, especially the paneer shields, I think, are the ones that are like coveted by all these different races. And some mention is made of, of Neelix even maybe being an arms dealer at some point, which <laughs> I thought was interesting trading in those shield systems. But yeah, the, these shields, they're very efficient. They... Uh, block a particular range of of weaponry and they find out that like they can get through it because like you said this these aliens don't use phasers they use something different Uh, so yeah the 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 strong shields were an interesting thing and i i like the kind of techno babbly way they they tackled that issue as well yeah and then this is kind of where it starts to lead to, to being two different storylines because they're approaching the ships. They want to negotiate peace with them. And part of that is eventually allowing Chakotay and Harry Kim and two others to head over to one of the Paneer ships to, to broker peace that Chakotay is going to be an ambassador. But before we get to that, it leaves this storyline continuing on with Voyager dealing with these ships. And they do make first contact with the Hatchai and the, the Hatchai don't really trust Voyager. They think they're a Paneer trick. And then Voyager easily avoids the damage from that Hatchai's energy shot. And they're still trying to broker peace and Balana is involved and trying to keep the ship up and going so they can battle And that's when Tuvok compares this to Ragnarok. And I guess what I'm trying to say is this started off good. But for me, as that storyline continued on, I was kind of getting bored of them Mm. just like fighting with the ships or figuring out what the ships are doing. And should we shoot another phaser at it? Should we dodge here, dodge there? We should leave. No, we shouldn't. You know, I, I don't know about you, but it was it was starting to get old for me. There were some parts I, I was interested in it. I was kind of enjoying the the piloting issues that Paris was having and his kind of frustration. And even in like the heat of the moment, how something happens and he fires at the wrong ship and that sets a whole. I thought that was going to be a way bigger deal than it was. Yeah. <laughs> They're basically like, well, OK, I guess that's happened now. Now we have to deal with it, which makes sense. You know, it's Paris is doing everything he can. But yeah, I I can understand that, how it can feel like it goes on for a little bit. Yeah, but I don't know. I was kind of into it. I liked the whole idea of Voyager trying to stay out of this battle and then, whoops, some arm of it now has engulfed them and now they're just trying to make their way out of it and stuff. I, I don't know. It was it was fun to visualize all of that going on, but it did go on for a while. That's a good point. I mean, it, it was kind of fun to visualize. And it, it again, to me, it went on for a while. 
But at the same time, I don't think I've ever told you this, but I tend to not really get into books that have space battles. Hmm, like interesting. if that's a focus and that's even on star Wars, you know, I've read some star <laughs> Wars books where it's all these space battles and I just, it doesn't work for me. You know, hmm. I don't know something about like watching a movie can be fun, but even action sequences in movies, I get bored really quick if it goes on for a while. Right. Know? Yeah. You, and, and I, so I totally get that because yeah, for me, the main meat of a story is the character interaction and, and that kind of stuff. And, what it means for the characters. So yeah, I can see how like action for action's sake that lasts for a while, you know, very plot heavy isn't the most engaging for sure. Well, let me ask you about that since you mentioned character and you mentioned Tom Paris in these scenes, did he feel a little off to you? Because he did for me, there was, he was close to Paris for me, but I felt like he was questioning Janeway a little too much. A little bit. I felt like they were kind of playing up his bad boy persona a little bit, which kind of makes sense based on where he is or where the character is supposed to be at the beginning of the series. A lot of these character beats, it feels like, and it's it's almost the fault of the television show, and I don't want to be too critical of Voyager, but it is kind of my least favorite Star Trek for a number of reasons. And one of them is a lot of the the character stuff they kind of abandon early on. Paris, to me, doesn't seem like a convicted felon who's been just released from prison. He very quickly becomes, you know, just another good guy on Voyager, you know, with some exceptions here and there. But I feel like maybe that show Bible emphasized that part of his character a little bit more, which was dropped fairly quickly in Voyager. So that might be kind of what the author is going with. And it's funny when you say that the characters didn't, uh, or, or Paris in particular, didn't really strike the right chord, seemed a little off to you. I totally agree and then there was one moment where he sarcastically, according to the, the novel, he says sarcastically to Janeway, yes, ma'am. And I was like, oh, that's Paris. That's totally <laughs> how he says that. And like, I don't know that he had done that in the show this early on, but like so much later on in later episodes, he's always, yes, ma'am. And I totally read that in this book and I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's just times where I thought he seemed like a little whiny, you know, Mm -hmm. or just like, we're we're not going to do that. Are we, why would we do that? Like, and it was just like, not quite right. But again, it's early on in the series when this came out and such, but I mean, it wasn't so far off just a little, there's just certain lines I got to, I was like, "Eh, I can't. I can't visualize this. I'm not really seeing Paris right now. And then Tuvok was good, but, you know, in a lot of ways, Vulcans have the same personality, which is pretty much none. (laughs) But in a lot of ways, he came across as a science officer. I almost felt like he was being written more like Spock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I got that impression as well. And and oddly enough, I felt that, like, he... Along with Janeway, I think, were the most like their series characters. I thought those voices were the best. And with Tuvok, especially early on Tuvok, it's not too hard to do. But yeah, they they have a lot of Vulcan template, right? Like they can make him sound Vulcan fairly easily, which Tim Russ playing Tuvok early on 
pretty much stuck to that. There wasn't a lot of, there's a little bit more nuance to his character as it goes on, but early on, yeah, he's pretty straight Vulcan for the most part. Yeah, I would say, but the characterizations of all the characters are, are very close, you know, but again, not spot on all the time because it was so early, but it, it wouldn't, it didn't really distract me from the book, but there was one thing that did kind of confuse me and distract me, which I really want to get to, because I read this thing so many times that I kept this like one page and I'm like, I feel like I'm missing something. And I'm like, I feel so stupid. So anyway, the away team, as I mentioned earlier, they're sent to go make contact. So with the Paneer and Chakotay is sent as an ambassador to do this. And Harry, Kim, and two other officers go with him to help pilot the shuttlecraft and accompany him. So as they get to this one Paneer ship, as they're getting closer and closer, they're going to go into the hangar bay. All of a sudden, Harry Kim beams onto the ship. And this is the part I was confused on. I didn't hear any discussion or plan that Harry's going to go ahead of them to beam on the ship to do something. Did I miss something? Because I got really confused at that point. I, I feel like you must have. Because, yeah, they, they're, they're basically pulled into the battle, kind of like Voyager is later and they they're trying to avoid everything and they're they're gonna get destroyed and finally they just fly right at this paneer cruiser to try and get its attention and uh they capture them and grab them in a tractor beam to bring them aboard and yeah there there is a discussion as far as i remember about you know let's send harry kim to hide somewhere in the ship so that like we can get some intelligence and and not all be captured immediately so yeah, I'm, I'm I guess not, I missed that. Yeah, yeah, it was. I thought that was kind of smart. Like it made sense, and and they even test it, right? Like they ask them, like, uh, how many of us do you want to come out of the shuttlecraft? And they're like, all three of you. And they're like, ha ha, they didn't detect Harry. <laughs> yes, yeah, it I remember worked. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it was. It was like they were going to the ship. They're going to the ship, and then they, and then Harry got in the transporter and beamed off. I was like, what? What? I guess I just didn't remember the conversation. I just reread the page and that conversation must have been a little earlier because I'm like, what am I missing here? Why did Harry just all of a sudden beam over? Yeah, because there there was even quite a bit of preparation for it too because they were like, okay, Harry, yeah, go get this. Get a get a an evac suit out of the locker and, and suit up. And then they're like going in, they scan and says, oh, actually, the, the we'll be able to breathe the air. And Chakotay's like, okay, Harry, forget the environmental suit, just beam out the way you are kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So let me ask you about Harry. Again, I feel like Harry's like the other characters we're talking about. Close, but not quite. Mm-hmm. I just felt that Harry was being like, this is an exaggeration, so take it as an exaggeration, but being like the Rambo of this group. <laughs> You know, Hmm. like he's going to beam over and get the intel and then he's going to come back. And then later he goes to get the captain of the ship and he's going to beam onto the bridge and bring the captain back. Then he's going to go do that. Like he's the one going like, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And I was like, is Harry really like going to volunteer for everything? And Chakotay's just going to go, yeah, boy, you go do it. Mm -hmm. I'm just going (laughs) to stay back here. (laughs) Yeah, I, th- I think they're like latching on to like the headstrong, eager to prove himself part of his character that was part of the early Harry stuff. The one thing that I kind of picked up on, and I don't know if it was intentional, is how much like, okay, Voyager, the TV series, it seemed like they made fun of Harry Kim all the time. And I was like reading into that a little bit where 
Chakotay and Rollins and Berate, the 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 three other people, they're all captured and put in the brig. And meanwhile, Harry Kim is off in this room trying to figure out how to turn on the lights and and get out of there and stuff. And Chakotay says something like, well, don't forget Harry's still out there. And Berate, I think it was Berate, is like, oh, yeah, trust me, I haven't forgotten Harry Kim. And it sounded sarcastic (laughs) to me. And I'm like, why are they being so mean? (laughs) Maybe maybe she wasn't. Maybe that was just how I read it because I'm used to them kind of kicking Harry all the time. But it felt like she was like, oh, yeah, Harry Kim. I haven't forgot about that. I don't know. I don't Maybe I just read that wrong. But I was like, wow, you jerks. (laughs) (laughs) I think I remember reading that as kind of like, oh, Harry Kim. Like he's, you know, like. Harry Potter, <laughs> you know, like hmm. he's the next coming, you know, he's the thing that's going to make us win. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know. And I, and I feel like there were a couple other moments too, where they emphasize how green and inexperienced he is, where he's like, he's like, well, what? Oh yeah. When they're, they're on the planet early on and they're going to go into the, the hole or whatever. And he's like, well, we'll fall and blah, blah, blah. And, Jane was like, Harry, you've forgotten your academy training, you know, the gravity at this level, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, right. Boy, I feel stupid or something. And I was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, poor dumb Harry. That's that's how the show writes him, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about poor Neelix. <laughs> oh, yes, let's. Oi. well because this is funny he's on the bridge as we talked earlier and he's like don't go in the cluster don't do this don't do this and Janeway's like oh well look the the beam came from there we should just go ahead and go in and he was like please please you're not listening to me and Janeway's like yeah I just think we're gonna do this like after a while of this pleading through several chapters that comes up and he looks all of a sudden is like I'm telling you don't do this and she's like you know, Neelix, why don't you go cook something? Get off the bridge and go, and go do some cooking. I was Ugh. like, why do you have him there if you're not going to listen to him or respect yeah. him? Yeah, or respect him, exactly. And there, there's so much of that. And I was never the biggest Neelix fan, especially in the first half of Voyager. But at the same time, like he is there for a reason. He's a guide, right? He knows the area of space. And there's a kind of point later where Janeway is like, oh, maybe I should use some of his expertise and Neelix, you know, blah, blah, blah. But early on, he's just portrayed as an as an annoyance. And there's like even an entire page and a half where they talk about how much like a clown he looks. And I'm like, (laughs) what is going on here? (laughs) Like, what's with the hate for Neelix? That was so weird. I didn't like that at all. No, I didn't either. But then we had, I thought, were some good cast scenes because when she sees the cluster, even though all this battle's going on, she's talking about the beauty and the colors mm. of the cluster. And Janeway's like, well, you know, that's another way to look at this, <laughs> which I guess is kind of weird when you think about yeah. it. It was a little odd. And, and I felt like, because I, I was trying to think of that and put it in context as well. And I feel like maybe he was kind of, going for the innocence and inexperience of Kess contributing to that maybe. And, and maybe her naivete about Mm -hmm. death and destruction and everything that's going on. Maybe, I don't know. I kept expecting them to kind of come back to that and they never really did. I kept thinking that he was going for the Kess sees the beauty in anything. 
you know? That makes sense too, yeah. Yeah. But then what I really liked about this book is that Kess then goes to sickbay to help the doctor. Mm-hmm. And they later employ Neelix to help too. But when she's in sickbay, the doctor doesn't really know Kess. And he's like, well, where's where's Tom Paris? Why isn't Tom Paris helping me? And she's like, well, Tom Paris is busy right now. I'm here to help you. And he's just like, okay. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great because she does become his like assistant for the most part, his medical assistant through most of the series while she's there. And this is like an early indication that she's going to be helping him. And I don't think the author knew that was the direction they were going to go with her in the series. Yeah, I don't think so, because it, it happens very similarly to the way it happens on the show, where, right. you know, Kess just kind of has to help out because there's no one else available and she's there. And the doctor's like, oh, wow, you're very good with this and you learn very quickly. So that was kind of interesting, that little parallel there. Yeah. So good call there, uh, author Archer. <laughs> So anything else about Neelix or Kess that you want to talk about or any other crew members on the ship? Well, one more thing about Neelix and it, and it bugged me because we, we mostly because we know where the character is going in the future, but Janeway's talking about like ambassadors to send. And she's like, well, obviously I can't send Neelix. (laughs) She doesn't even give an explanation or anything. Just like, well, obviously Neelix isn't fit to go. Like that's ridiculous. But like Neelix later is their ambassador, basically. And he's the only one on the crew that knows anything whatsoever about these two races. You know, even even if it's just the smallest thing here or there, he still knows more than anyone else on the ship about them. He should absolutely be one of the ambassadors out there. And I was just, you know, if the book gave more of an explanation as to why Janeway made that decision, okay, but it's just, it's written as though we're meant to understand that like, oh, Neelix is too much of a goof and ridiculous. He could never be the ambassador uh, to these species. So we can't send him, you know, she doesn't even have to give an explanation because we, as the reader understand Neelix is just too much of a clown. So that bugged me. I was especially, like I said, and hindsight is 2020, of course, but especially that later he becomes basically Voyager's ambassador. But then at the same time, she's asking him, well, how do we penetrate their shields? How are their shields made? And he's like, well, I don't know. Cause I never come. And it's just almost like, she's like, why don't you know this? Yeah. <laughs> Like, damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? Yeah. (laughs) He's either a know-it-all who knows too much and is, you know, volunteering too much information and I'm just not going to listen to him anyway, or he doesn't know the right information, doesn't know enough about everything. That was, yeah, it was a little frustrating. Even speaking as someone who's not the biggest Neelix fan, I was like, come on, give the guy a break. And then they didn't really explore the relationship between Neelix and Kess, which I find surprising. I don't even think it was ever really touched on. Well, there's a significant moment when he gets really jealous of the doctor because he gets to spend all this time with Kess. And he's like, wait, am I jealous of a hologram? Is that possible? (laughs) I forgot. Yes, that's a good one, actually. I like that scene. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. And, And really picking up on Neelix's jealousy. That is one of his traits early on in Voyager, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jealous of the doctor. (laughs) That was good. 
So, okay, then we've got the way team, the three members, Chakotay and the two others, they've been captured, they're prisoners, and Harry's trying to work his way through getting information on the ship. And I like the way that the author described the smells and the feelings of things and, and the looks of things, and it's dark, and there's a green glow, green lights and stuff. Did a very good job of really building the environment that the ship is and Harry going through that. And Harry eventually makes his way to the shuttlecraft and is able to beam the three of them out back onto the, onto the vessel, onto their shuttlecraft from the vessel. And they also took the opportunity, as I said earlier, for Harry to beam onto the bridge, take his communicator and get the captain back on the shuttlecraft, which the captain's so tall can barely really even fit in the ship. Those scenes with the captain, I think, were some of the better scenes. Those are interesting because, yeah, we're getting insight into how these aliens think and and how they differ from us. And I really liked that idea of Chakotay trying to talk with her and, you know, he's saying things and she's just totally ignoring him. And then someone has the insight. They say, like, Commander, everything she says is like a a command, like a, a, a an imperative. Maybe try that. So instead of saying, like... I wonder if you might tell us how to blah, 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 or, um, Hey, how does something work? You have to say, you will tell me how this works. You will give me the information about whatever. And he starts to turn it around because she's kind of interrogating them and they realize how she's speaking and turn it around. That was fun. I liked that idea of just building those bridges and learning to communicate so that was interesting. And then the insight that like she's no longer the captain because she's been disgraced now. Yeah. And then whoever becomes the captain will also be disgraced if they go to get that captain. And it's just this long line of disgraced captains that lose their command of the ship. And yeah, because they really want her to make the command to allow them to escape, to turn off the tractor beam so they can leave the ship, open the hangar doors and leave. And she's just like, well, I'm not the captain anymore and they're like what do you mean you're not the captain well because i've been captured i'm disgraced and now this person's the captain and then we also learn later when they do utilize her when she finally agrees if you take me back i'll let you i'll turn off the tractor beam and you can leave she goes into this whole story about her family and she's the last of her line and and because of that she's ready to just end things and she i don't Yeah, you know, it was a really good way of showing a different culture in this book that we didn't really get with the Hachai. We were getting with more of the Paneer. Yeah, we got, yeah, the Hachai, we we see like the remnants of of some civilians and this doll and that kind of thing. That's kind of the most insight we get into them. And yeah, we do learn a lot more about the Paneer, which I thought that was interesting for sure. And yeah, she's going to destroy the ship instead of turn off the tractor beam and stuff. And I love that whole scene too, where she's giving this long story and Harry's like, ah, that's nice. Okay. Why are you telling? And then he slowly (laughs) clues in. He's like, I'm getting nervous now. Why are you telling me this? What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, He just keeps like, what are you doing? Can you speed along? Why are you telling me this? What are you doing? Like, it just keeps going on like that for a while. (laughs) And then the guards come in. And because 
he's so small compared to them, they're missing him and hitting the captain. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> well, yeah, they immediately like realize she's a threat to the ship and, and take her out right away. And I, that was surprising to me that like, yeah, Boo, she's dead. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that that's the end of that, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Harry's Harry's short, right? These these guys are really tall, so that was yeah. kind of cool. He's dodging and all this. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. But he does eventually get back to the ship. He beams on, and they're able to get out, and boom, the ship does explode. So it was destroyed. So end of that. But then the one thing I did really like about going back to the other storyline about Voyager, and now that the away team is back, Balana actually figures out a way to utilize their phasers because the weapons on the Hachai ships are not polarized, but their shields are. So when Voyager can rotate the polarity of the phasers and have them match the polarity of the shields, it's able to break through and shoot the ships. And I thought that was pretty cool that they actually figured out that the shields, which is the biggest defense, can be utilized to get their phasers through. And so mm-hmm. that was pretty cool to me. Yeah, that was neat. And the the tactics that they're using with Tuvok firing the phasers and stuff and then turning over control to Paris and all of that, that was kind of fun. I, I enjoyed that. And, you know, they, they don't want to attack and destroy these ships, but they're also not giving them much choice. So, you know, Voyager, I feel like kills a lot of people here, but, you know, they didn't have a choice. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they kept these ships kept attacking and getting in their way and blocking them and all these things. And yeah, so they, yeah, in a lot of ways they didn't have a choice, but there was something that was mentioned earlier in the book and was brought back at this point. And I remember when they described this big object amongst this battle, the stationary round object that had some holes in it. Did you think that might've been what we get from the Corbinite maneuver episode of that ship for the first Federation. I I do have to admit that. Yes, that was what I was immediately thinking of when it was described early on. They said it was a, a big sphere with kind of like smaller cells all over it. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like Baylock's ship. <laughs> That's what I thought too. Yes. <laughs> and you know, I, I did briefly think of that. And then, Somebody says, and it looked vaguely familiar, but they couldn't think of from where. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's totally what it is then. Like, <laughs> And uh, yeah, we do get, like you said, confirmation of that towards the end of the episode. And that was a very, I felt very self-satisfied. I was like, nah, I knew it. <laughs> yeah, I knew it too. And I remember it came up and then you didn't hear about it for a while. And I kept thinking, are they going to come back to this? Because I think, I think I'm right. I think this is what this is. You know, I'm pretty sure I got this. And the fact that they said that this round sphere hasn't been destroyed throughout this battle, that they could actually utilize going into it. They'll protect themselves from the battle because it's actually sturdy enough that it's not going to be destroyed. And if they go in and kind of hide in there, you know, put their shields down, bring the shuttlecraft in, they got their away team, and then eventually they're going to propel themselves out of this whole battle and life goes on and everybody's happy. (laughs) So... Mm -hmm. Um, but they weren't able to activate the Tetrion beam because Tuvok explains that the something about the battle, a ship 
probably cause the sphere to create the beam temporarily, but once it activated it, it also destroyed it at the same time. And so mm-hmm. they can't utilize that. So I was very surprised that they weren't able to get back to earth at the end of this novel. Yeah. Shocked. I, I really <laughs> thought this would be how they got back. Yeah, no, but the one thing that, that kind of confused me about that, and I didn't even think about it while I was reading it, but I'm just thinking it now, like, a beam, one beam is very small. And the fact that it came out of the star cluster exactly to hit Voyager. <laughs> yes. That's a huge coincidence. That's wild. I'd never thought of that until just now, but like <laughs> that I, Tuvok could give us the odds and they would be very long odds. <laughs> yeah. Because when they said this was a one-time thing, that's when I thought, wow, they're very convenient that Voyager actually showed up at the moment that this one time, this beam goes out and actually hits Voyager and is able to go through all this cluster of ships too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, very convenient there. So, but you know, that's how these things work. So the way this ends is they're along their merry way and come to find out that these two warring races have now decided to negotiate with one another because they realized that they could form a military alliance against a common foe like Voyager. Like they're actually more powerful working together and they don't want peace. They'll do, you know, they'll negotiate and work together, but they're looking for another war or something else to fight, but they can do it better together than to do it against each other. And so really a warring life just goes on. Yeah, that was, that was wild. That was one thing that like, as we were getting closer towards the end of the book, I was kind of worried that Voyager would succeed in their mission, like get the two sides to negotiate and come together and declare peace. And I'm like, this battle has been going on for centuries. Like that would be, I would be annoyed if that were the end of the book that like, yay, they succeeded. Everyone's happy. Everyone should live together like the Federation does, but they do have an effect. Like you say, they realize, Oh, Hey, there's this ship out there that has way better weapons than us. And boy, wouldn't that be cool to get our hands on that technology. So let's, go attack these federations that must just be really close by or something and, and take their stuff. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a downer of an ending that that's what Voyager's interference has led to here is them basically uniting. And they said, you know, the battle might be over in 30 or 40 or 50 years and they'll, whatever side wins will come out of that cluster looking to rebuild their civilization and attack other people. And now because of Voyager's interference, that's going to happen sooner. And with both of them working together now is kind of how it seems like this may go from here. So that's brutal. That, that kind of (laughs) sucks. Yeah. Now, and, and that is revealed like in just the last few pages, it's, It's very close to the end, uh, so it's not really built upon or examined in too much detail. But, yeah, I I agree with you, though, that I'm kind of glad it wasn't the typical Voyager comes in and gets everybody establishing peace and brokering the peace, and now the two are friends, and, you know, they pat themselves on the back and move on. I mean, it's great when that happens, but it shouldn't always happen, right? It's kind of expected. And it seemed like very unlikely that it would happen here. Like it, it was a bit of 
sheer hubris on the on the part of Janeway that she thought that that could happen. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Well, at the beginning of the show, you gave this three out of five. Now we've talked through it. So I'd like to hear your final thoughts on this at this point. Yeah. So final thoughts. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm glad I read this book. It was enjoyable. It was it was a fun read, a short read, not a bad tale to consume in a few hours kind of thing. But I think my thoughts are, are largely unchanged from the beginning. It's it's still about a three out of five for me because it's there's some things that age well, some things that don't. And, and there's some parts of this that just really <laughs> make it obviously a product of where it is in Voyager's timeline and not just of the show, but of people's understanding of the show and that sort of thing. Like, I had to laugh out loud, for example, when they're like, our one working shuttlecraft. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> yes. yeah, one shuttlecraft. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where the heck does this endless supply come from later? That No, but yeah, just little things that like that, that, you know, I, I was thinking like maybe they looked at the schematics of Voyager and at the back of the bridge and it shows a shuttlecraft in the tail end of Voyager. It's like maybe they thought, oh, that's just the one shuttlecraft. Okay. I don't know. That's a minor thing. It's not a huge complaint, but the, the, some of the characterizations, they'll be a little off. You know, if you're reading this book, expecting to see everything familiar that you know about Voyager, it's going to be almost there, but not quite. The story itself was interesting, but some of the choices the characters made annoyed me, mostly Janeway and her dealings with Neelix that was that still irks me after this time so yeah I I, I stand by my uh, I'd say three out of five risky missions by Harry Kim designed to impress his his superior officers <laughs> yeah I have to agree with you once again because I agree with you most of the time but uh, I, I I'm gonna stick with three out of five but as we were going through this book I started to realize, and especially after you said something earlier about the bumpy head aliens and the budget of Voyager, I too went into Voyager when it first premiered and they were going to the other side of the galaxy. I thought, oh, this is going to be so cool. Things are going to be really weird. Things are going to feel really different, you know, and, it, and I knew they didn't have a big budget, so I wasn't expecting, you know, these great looking aliens or such but i just expected things to be weird strange like things don't really operate the way they do there as they do on our side of the galaxy so i'm thinking reading this book at that time i think i would have given it a four out of five because i think i would have read this book and thought this is kind of more of what i want to see in voyager i just wish they had the budget to do it you know but because like you said over time We've gotten to know Voyager better. We've gotten to know these characters better. The show found its own rhythm over time. And it doesn't age as well because it's so early. So I'm going to stick to the three out of five. But I would say at the time I would have probably given it a four out of five. But now I'd say it's three out of five times that Janeway sends Neelix to go cook something for her. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so... I'm I'm glad we got to read that. I enjoyed it. It was fun. And it is a quick read. It's not as long as most of the Star Trek novels that come out today. It's not quite as short as a novella, but it's kind of somewhere in between, I would say. So, Dan, if people want to talk to you about Ragnarok, whether it's Star Trek or Thor or whatever, where can people find you? 
You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's just Star Trek backwards. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And of course, as always, like I always like to say, in our Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. Please join. We'd love to have you there. And I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And occasionally I do a little this and that with literary treks and Star Wars report. But uh, yeah, just reach out to me on Twitter or send me an email to Admiral underscore Rex at Yahoo.com. Or you can send the show an email, PositivelyTrek at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Positively Trek and look for our Goodreads group. Join our book club there and you'll see the upcoming books we're going to talk about. So if you were part of the group before this episode, you would have known we're going to read Ragnarok weeks ahead and you could have read it too with us. So please check that out. We have a lot of fun there. And I just want to thank our patrons on Patreon for all your support. We can't do this without you. And thank you to our listeners for supporting us as well. So again, thank you everyone, and until next time, I want you to go out into the world, out into the galaxy, out into the universe, and stay positive. (laughs) Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.